Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible in Life. My heart, my passion really is just to teach the Bible and teach it in such a way that it connects with everyday life. One of the things I like to say is that I believe Bible teaching ought to be blue jeans theology. That is theology for everyday life. And I really try to embody that here on the podcast. And so thanks for joining me each week as we study the scriptures together and hopefully provide some insight into the text as well as some wisdom for living for you as we, we look into the Bible together. And, and if you know somebody who might be interested in this kind of teaching, might be helped by it, who's looking just maybe to understand the Bible a little bit more, or just some wisdom from God for life from His Word, man, share the podcast with them. Uh, you know, shoot them a quick text right now and just say, hey, dude, I listened to this podcast called Bible and Life, or uh, send them an email, put it on your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever it is, and just let people know that here's a resource that might be helpful to you that teaches the Bible and does so in a way that connects it with life and and share with them. Also, if you're looking for some help reading the Bible and reading it right, I've got basically um, what could almost be called a kind of a starter kit for reading the Bible well, reading the Bible right on my website. It really begins with a reading plan that's aimed at just helping you follow Jesus. Three readings a week for 24 weeks to help you really form the habit of reading the Bible because nothing is more transformative to your life and nothing is more central to your walk with God than reading the Bible regularly. So it helps you get started doing that because sometimes the hardest bit is to know how to get started. And so reading plan. But then along with that, I'll send you a three-part video series that helps uh, really helps you read the Bible in a way that builds your friendship with God so you're not just reading the text for reading the text's sake, but how can you really read it in a way to engage with God? So I have that. And then also I'll I'll send along with that a uh, basically a two-page little guide to reading the Bible with head and heart. That when we read the Bible, we've there's we've got to do some some thinking. We've got to do some reasoning, right? Like it's a little bit of a foreign world at times. So we've got to try to understand it the way it meant to be understood. But we don't want to stop there. It's not meant to be ancient history. It's meant to be lived. So you got to read the Bible both head and heart. So a guide to that. So those three things all kind of come in a sequence. Um, if you sign up for that Bible reading plan on my website, I'll put the link uh, to that down in the notes below. So if that would be helpful to you really to get started reading the Bible right, just go ahead, follow that link, and just put in your name, your email address, and I'll send that stuff to you. All right. Okay, I have a topic on the podcast today that's a little bit difficult and a little bit challenging. It grew out of our series that we wrapped up in the last episode on Christian hope, and we walked through various texts about that. But then a listener, actually this listener was my mom, um, texted me with, but what about hell? And, and so it's like, wow, let's, uh, let's reflect on it. Let's talk a little bit about hell sort of as a follow-up to and corollary to Christian hope. There's always that backside of, well, yeah, but what about hell? And so I want to give you some thoughts on um, hell today and what the Bible says about that. And just uh, to be Frank, I mean, it's not a hell is a challenging topic. It's a difficult topic to think about. And frankly, I think the Bible says, uh, gives us less details about it than maybe sometimes we're given the impression in the church, or maybe sometimes we've heard, or maybe even sometimes we've believed that 
I think we have we probably have more questions about hell than we we want to admit if we're going to handle the text honestly. So I want to look at some of that today and at least say, okay, here's some of the things the text says. What does that kind of mean? And how do we deal with that? And even really deal with, but what about the justice a little bit of, of hell? And so try to cram all that in the next 15, 20 minutes here, okay? And see what we we can we can do as we we talk about hell a little bit. And and just to know right up front, you know, that's kind of this traditional uh, Christian image of hell of like, you know, flames of fire and and uh, uh, a red being with horns and a pokey tail and a pitchfork. I mean, I, let's, let's just cast that all aside. That's obviously a fictitious caricature. Shows up nowhere like that in the text. That grows out of really... Uh, Middle Ages kind of, I don't know, theological speculation or artwork or something that has nothing to do with the biblical image of hell. So throw that aside and let's just talk about what are some things the Bible actually says about hell for sure. So what I want to do is let's begin with just some kind of common biblical phrases or images for for hell that show up in in places in the biblical text, and then we got to figure out what do those things actually mean. And so the, the most important image for us to begin with is just actually the word hell itself. It is a translation of a Greek word, Gehenna, which is actually just a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Gehinnom, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom outside of the city of Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, and really throughout uh, much of the biblical period, the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem was sort of like the city garbage dump. And so you had to have a place where you you dumped all your waste, right, in an ancient city. Well, the Valley of Hinnom was that. It was the dump. It was the garbage dump. And not only that, when, like, during times of siege, when, uh, say, for example, when uh, in the Old Testament, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed, those bodies would have been piled up out in the Valley of Hinnom and burned there. Um, That was the place where all that happened, okay? And in Jesus' day, that was still the city dump. And so you have just piles of trash and whatever, you know, out there, and, and, and it would be burning and all of that. Well, that then becomes this word uh, Gehenna, which in our modern translations gets translated hell. But just know that it referred to a literal reality of the, the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem, And some scholars contend that it's maybe pointing more than likely just to that as sort of a a symbol of humanity that's wrecked, or in some cases, like even N.T. Wright suggests that he thinks it's more just referring to, look, you know the history of this place, and you know what happens when God's people go go against God, and how there's siege, and there's war, and then there's bodies piled up and burned, and if, if you, O oh, Jerusalem, don't repent, and you don't start listening to God and following God's ways, that's going to happen again. And and so some suggest that. All right, so you have the garbage dump, uh, Gehenna, as one of the pictures of hell in the New Testament. Another picture of hell that shows up pretty regularly is this idea, and it grows out of that garbage dump imagery, um, is the picture of unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. For example, Mark chapter 9, verse 43 says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having 
your two hands to go into hell, go into Gehenna, that's that word there, to go into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire, into the fire that never goes out. Um, That imagery of unquenchable fire, never-ending fire, and it really does grow out of in connection to that idea of Gehenna, where you have this garbage dump where, you know, the fire is burning out there to burn up all the trash from the city, and that fire just kind of keeps burning and burning and burning and burning, and thus it now becomes a a part of this imagery of the 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 opposite of going into life is to going into Gehenna, where there's this constant burning, all right? And along with that imagery is this imagery of sort of like maggots or worms or whatever it is. All right. Again, so let me just read Mark 9, even a little bit further down. Verses 47 and 48 says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter into God's kingdom with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, be cast into Gehenna. Again, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And again, playing off that imagery of the garbage dump where you just have maggots, you have worms just kind of, right, all in the garbage eating all that stuff. Um, That's that imagery of hell. So kind of this gnawing of this worm, the eating of the worms, maggots or whatever it is. And so picture of presumably hell. Um, So that's some imagery that we have in the text. Another bit of imagery is this idea of darkness. Um, and, and along with that, the corollary to that is this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those two images Jesus mentions, this idea of darkness and kind of weeping, sobbing, mourning, and gnashing of teeth, presumably grinding your teeth in, in angst and anger, resentment, regret. I don't know what it all is, but that imagery, right? Here's one text where that shows up, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is basically saying, look, people are going to come from all over the world and they're going to actually enter into the blessing of Abraham, the eternal life that Abraham was promised Abraham, this imagery from the Jewish world. And so they're going to enter into that. And then Jews who ought to have been the most prepared are going to miss out on that. That's the context of these words. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so an eternal life in this great banquet that's going to come. People from all over the world are going to come, but the sons of the kingdom, which means in this context, the Jews, those who should have been most prepared, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out, and here's that imagery, into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so that's another bit of imagery, presumably for the the, the contrast, hell, the contrast to eternal life is this outer darkness, this place where it's just dark and bleak and there's weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth. In fact, uh, the apostle Peter in his uh, second letter, verse 17 says, describing false teachers and uh, people who are just driven by sensuality and immorality in the text. These are springs without water, misdriven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So that imagery of just utter, complete darkness. I don't know if you've ever like been in a cave and you turned out your flashlight or your lantern in this cave and just was like pitch black. You couldn't see, you literally couldn't see your hand in front, no light in there. That's sort of how I picture that, this complete total darkness. It's it's almost oppressive. So that's a bit of imagery for hell. And that's, those are some of the major 
pieces of imagery. So the garbage dump, this idea of unquenchable fire, uh, e- kind of almost eternal worms and maggots or whatever it is, uh, black darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, some of the common imagery for uh, hell in the New Testament. Now, here's a really important question about all that imagery. Is that imagery literal or is it just symbolic? Um, in other words, is the reality being pointed to by this imagery, but the reality is something other than that, something different than that, or is this the way it's really going to be? There's going to be real flames, there's going to be real worms, there's going to be real darkness, there's going to be uh, real weeping and gnashing of teeth, and maybe there will be real weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I tend to think personally that this is imagery, this is symbolic language pointing to a reality that's something other than and probably greater than the reality. Just one of the reasons I think that is put two of these imageries together and they don't fit. Unquenchable fire, utter darkness. How do you put those two together? Fire produces light. You can't have fire and complete darkness, outer darkness, at the same time. And so I think, well, those are just imagery, symbols pointing to something beyond them, pointing to something that we don't have a good grasp on, we've never had a map of or experience of, so we don't know exactly what it's like. It's trying to get at something that's awful and just being in a completely dark, oppressive place, that's awful. Getting Being in a place with, with burning and the stench of burning and trash and a garbage dump, that's awful, right? So I think these are symbols. That's my opinion. It's the best way I, I try to put it all together. Uh, more symbols than literal. And while we're at questions, here's another question that at least we have to ask is, is this suffering of hell, is it eternal, ongoing, or is it temporary? And here's what I mean by that. There are um, orthodox Bible teachers and scholars who, who are convinced that um, the, the kind of the more technical phrase for it is, that, that there's conditional uh, immortality. And what they mean by that is, is this punishment doesn't go on forever and ever and ever, just like eternal life does go on forever and ever and ever. This punishment is temporary in the sense that um, people uh, suffering the punishment of hell, um, they cease to exist at some point in time. They go out of existence, and so their ultimate punishment is ceasing to exist. And so there are Orthodox scholars who believe that. For example, John Stott, very well-known Bible preacher and teacher, he believed in conditional immortality, that people in hell would cease to exist at some point in time. I have another good friend who, who that has, uh, he has emerged at that perspective of hell. Um, and so is the do people in hell exist forever and ever in this state of suffering and anguish or do they cease to exist at some point it seems to me my my understanding of the text that there are passages in the text of scripture that that uh, make it pretty clear that that people uh, apart from God people, you know, suffering judgment and and being sent into eternal punishment, that they they continue to exist in some form or fashion in this anguish of separation from God. That seems to be, uh, in my opinion, the best way to understand the text. Um, again, to me, that's a question that 
is a legitimate question, but the text seems to to suggest that conditional immortality isn't isn't the best option. Um, And so that's the way I understand it. Here's the thing that I feel most confident about when we talk about hell. Um, I feel most confident in this, that the thing that makes uh, hell hellish ultimately is separation from God. Uh, let me read you a text out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, describing the coming of Jesus and saying that he's going to bring uh, judgment, vengeance on those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. This is what it says. Verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 1 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And I think that gets at most clearly and probably most literally the nature of hell. The thing that makes hell hellish is being away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And I think those symbols that we see in other places are pointing towards this reality in some way that here's the thing that makes hell hellish is you're separated from God himself and from his glory. And if God is the source of all beauty, of all joy, of all love, of all wisdom, of all goodness, of everything that's good and right in this world, then to be cut off from him is is hell. It's awful. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no beauty. There's no goodness, right? Everything that is good in this world derives from God himself, and to be separated from him is the most awful thing that could possibly happen. And and so, in my understanding of the scriptures, and in my understanding, therefore, of hell, uh, I see this as the central piece, the most certain thing Uh, about hell is this, is the thing that makes hell hellish is separation from God himself. And ultimately, the reason people experience that separation is not because God just forced it upon them, right? And forced them, you know, into this terrible, awful state. The reason they experience this separation from God is because that's what they wanted. That's what they willed. That's what they chose. They did not want any connection with God. They did not want a relationship with God. And God is not going to force himself on them. God's not a cosmic stalker, right? He's not um, He's not going to force them into a relationship with him if they didn't want it. And so they experience forever the consequence of their resistance to, rejection of, and their unwillingness to be in relationship with God. And God's like, fine, uh, I'll let you go your own way. And it turns out to be hell without him. Um, and thus, it's it's really the end of the road that people are traveling on. They've taken this road that takes them away from God, and that's that's where they end up is without God and apart from God, and it's miserable and it's awful. Um, before we leave this topic, let me just raise this other question about hell. Well, is hell just? How could a loving God send people to hell for all eternity? Uh, how could a just God punish people eternally for t- sins done in a temporary place, in a temporary presence? Um, that's a very common objection to 
the idea of hell or even a common objection to Christianity's teaching about all this. Let me just offer just a few thoughts real quickly, real briefly. This really deserves its own episode. Maybe at some point we'll do it, but just real brief. Um, It's just some considerations on this question. First is this, free will. In order for a creature to really be free, there must be the possibility of receiving what we choose. And if we choose to, to reject God and say, I don't want anything to do with you, God, there has to be the possibility of actually receiving that. Um, second consideration is the cross. When you look at the cross, hasn't God already done enough to try to win people's affection, to win them over and say, look, I'm willing to give you amnesty. I'm willing to wipe the slate clean. I'm willing to 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 suffer, to win you uh, over to myself. And if, if, uh, if human beings continue to reject him, is it, is it ultimately still really his fault? I think we have to wrestle with that. Um, I think another consideration is forgiveness. Um, forgiveness needs to be received, accepted, as well as offered. If God offers forgiveness, but somebody doesn't want to receive that gift, Again, is it is it totally God's fault? Is it something God should be blamed for? If God allows someone to to reap the consequences of their choices and the road they're traveling uh, leads to hell, it's not because God's not forgiving. God has been forgiving; they just haven't been receiving. Um, and then the last consideration, as we wrestle with that, I just think is the whole idea of justice. Um, is is it wrong to punish a criminal? Do we really want, um, uh, in the language of Peter Kreeft, do we really want a bad man to remain bad for all eternity? Do we really want him to remain unrepentant for all eternity? These are questions Peter Kreeft asks as he wrestles with this idea of justice of hell. And I, I think we do have to wrestle with the idea of justice. If God is going to set things right... Well, there's, you know, setting things right means eliminating things that are wrong. There has to be a place for that. And and people, in order to really be free, have to be accountable for their actions, however that plays out. Um, I think C.S. Lewis has this quote in, uh, it's in his book, The Problem of Pain, but he's dealing with the issue of hell there in this one chapter. And I think this quote is incredibly powerful and is worth us thinking about. He says this, those in hell experience forever the horrible freedom they have demanded, and they are therefore self-enslaved. In the long run, the answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. Well, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Well, he's done so at Calvary on the cross. Are you asking God to forgive them? Well, they refuse to be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Well, alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. And ultimately, I think that's the centerpiece of hell, is God's just not going to force people into relationship with himself. But since God is the source of everything that is good and everything that is pleasant and everything that is beautiful and everything that is right and everything that is bright and lovely and full of love and joy, since God is the source of all that, if you're separated from him, then then that is hell. That is awful. That is miserable. 
And that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at when he says, well, I'm, alas, I'm afraid that's what God does. That's what God does. And so, man, I, I, uh, I confess I don't understand everything about hell, certainly. Don't know exactly how it'll play out. Uh, I believe that God's mercy is far greater than anything I could understand. And I believe that God's justice is far wiser than anything I could understand. And so I trust God to sort all that out and trust that whatever God does, it will be right. Because God is more loving and merciful than anybody could ever imagine. And he's wiser and more just than um, anybody could ever imagine. And so I think ultimately we have a lot of questions. We have some things we don't really know. We don't obviously understand exactly how it's going to play out, but we can trust God with it. And so those are some of my thoughts on the doctrine of hell. I hope it's helpful to you just to begin wrestling with that, thinking that through. And ultimately, I would say knowing that there is a day of judgment and knowing that people are going to be held accountable for their actions, um, we should live and make it our ambition to please the Lord in every respect and to live in deep partnership with him. So may you do that. May you walk with God and live in partnership with him because he is the source of life and goodness and beauty and love. And you want to be connected to him and experience that forever and ever and ever. Hey, I just wanted to say thanks to, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to say thanks to all of you who uh, in various ways support this show, sharing it, praying for it. Um, some of you who support through my Patreon page, it says a listener-supported show and actually just picked up a couple new patrons in the last couple weeks. So thanks to, to Dan and to Jeremy for jumping in and becoming patrons of the Bible and Life podcast. I really appreciate that. And I've actually been doing a little bit of uh, work on the book of Revelation over my Patreon page for my patrons where let's just talk about the book of Revelation, its background and how to read it and all of that. And so um, released the first episode on uh, the book of Revelation last month. I'll be recording the episode, uh, second episode on the book of Revelation for this month. And so if you want to get in on some of that and you're not yet a patron of the Bible Life podcast, swing over to my Patreon page and sign up to be a patron there. So thanks to all of you who in whatever way you can and whatever way you do support the Bible and Life podcast. Uh, it means a lot to me and I just enjoy being able to to teach the word with you and, and share the Bible with you in this way. If you've got questions about the Bible, if you've got passages you want me to study, I would love to hear from you. Shoot me an email, shoot me a message through Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is and let's connect. So God bless you guys and we will see you in the next episode of The Bible in Life.